heavy, heavy chapter, but there's some there's some encouraging things in it as well. Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on, upon the sun. And it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat. And they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent, so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there has not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God, to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Let's pray with me. Father, again, I pray for insight. We thank you. Thank you for your word, because it's by your word that we're strengthened, we're encouraged, we're spiritually fed. Lord, we, we know that it's through your word that our mind is renewed. Through your word that we have insight that we might have wisdom that's even greater than the ancients. And we love your word, how it manifests you, how it, how, it, how it makes what is true clear, so that we would not be led 
astray by falsehood. And I pray that you would use this text tonight to encourage my brothers and sisters to, 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 to use it to effect, effectively shepherd them and to direct them into your will. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, chapter 16 narrates, again, the final pouring out of the bold judgments of God, the final expressions of His wrath. In fact, you might have heard it says in there, it is done. It is done. So it's bringing everything to completion. In fact, uh, it describes what in chapter 11 said would happen at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. If you look at chapter 11, verse 19, it says, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, God's temple in heaven was opened. The Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. All right, so it's, it's, it's explaining everything that's taking place really also in what's described with the seventh trumpet. Now, the first four bold judgments might have sounded familiar because they, they seem to correspond with the first four trumpet judgments. Uh, they affect the earth, the sky, the rivers, and then also uh, the sea. And this leads some scholars to conclude that these are referring to the same judgments. The problem with that interpretation, though, is the trumpet judgments limit uh, the effects to a third in most of those. But the bold judgments, the effect is total. Now, it's possible that they are the same cataclysm or same plagues that are bringing these about, it's the same cause in that over time what started as just a third of the ships or a third of the trees uh, then expands to everything. So that's possible. Um, but, but there's still different judgments, I think, is the best way to interpret that. Um, even if there is somewhat of a connection. Because by the end of the bold judgments, the earth is going to be devastated. And that's the point. You, you, there's no water that's drinkable, for instance. Let's look at the beginning at verse 1, chapter 16. He begins saying, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. It begins with the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped the image. We'll talk about the sores in a second. Um, but if, I want to point to our attention to the fact that it says a voice from the temple speaks. And we know that that voice is Yahweh's because according to 15.8, he's the only one left in the temple. And he commands these angels to pour out wrath, his bowls of wrath upon the earth. And this first bowl produces loathsome and malignant sores on anyone who had taken the mark of the beast. So because they had gotten the mark of the beast on their skin, their hand or their forehead, with talionic justice, God brings about sores on their skin that they had marked their skin with. And this, the same word for sores is used in Luke 16 and in his story about the rich man and Lazarus says that Lazarus um, uh, desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And the dogs came and licked his sores. Like the dogs showed more compassion upon him than this rich man. Well, those sores are probably a reference to painful boils. That's probably what's 
being referred to here. But notice that the pain of these boils is so intense that it causes people to gnaw their tongues to try and relieve the pain that they feel. You see that in verse 10. They're desperate to relieve the pain that is caused by these boils. And they're, they're remarkably described as loathsome and malignant. That's the NASB. The ESV call, uh, translates these two words harmful and painful. The Greek words you might be familiar with are kakon, kai, poneron. Kakai, sorry, kakon, kai, poneron. Uh, Loosely, generally translated, these words are bad and evil. That's how they typically are translated. They're very general words. They're synonymous. Uh, they're used together in 1 Corinthians 5.8. Let us therefore celebrate the, the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so they're, they're typically are, they're moral words. But here they're used to describe the physical nastiness of these boils. And I think the reason uh, John chooses to use moral words is because it's reflect, these sores are reflective of the hearts of these unbelievers. In fact, these unbelievers who have destroyed the earth with their evil are um, to the earth what these malignant sores are to them. Right? They are sores upon the earth, in other words, because of their uh, wickedness. So the first bowl is poured out upon the earth in judgment upon uh, those who have taken the mark of the beast. The second is poured out on the sea. And, and note the result is that it became blood, like a dead man. Now notice it doesn't say it became like blood. It doesn't just look red. So this isn't a crimson tide. It's the entire ocean, the entire sea that has become blood. It's, a, it's an ocean of literal blood, and it's like a dead man, like the blood that comes out of a dead man is the point. And this is why everything in the sea dies, because there's no more water in the ocean. The, the, the fish can't swim in blood. They perish. And, it, of course, the same thing happens to the fresh water with the third bowl. All the springs and streams turn to blood as well. And I, as I was thinking about this, this may explain... Why the, the, after the slaughter of Armageddon, as we read in the previous chapter, that the blood flows as high as four feet for 200 miles? Um, it's hard to imagine there'd be that many bodies that produce that much blood, although, I mean, there's going to be a lot of bodies that perish in that battle. But it would make sense, too, if the streams and rivers around the Holy Land were already had turned into blood, and then from this battle it just flows all the more full. So this may, be, this may tie into that. Now in verse 5, we have one of two parentheses in this chapter. And these parenthetical statements really help us to understand the implications or we might say the applications of these bold judgments for ourselves. So beyond the fact that we see that God will bring justice on the earth, he will, that God is angry with sinners, there is application for believers within this text. And these help us to see that. Uh, they, they show the theological significance of the chapter. Notice what verse 5 says. I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you 
who are and who were, O holy one, because you've judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You've given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, the true and righteous are your judgments. These emphasis on the righteousness, the justice of God. There's also another allusion to his holiness. Not, I mean, it's not an allusion. It's, it's emphatic. You are holy, the Holy One. And he is, speaks to his aseity, who was and who is and who is to come. So justice, holiness, eternality are emphasizing God in contrast to those who are being judged. So again, the justice is showing that God is absolutely right in what he's doing. So just as people chose of their own free will to take the mark of the beast, do their evil and wicked hearts, God then marks their skin with evil and wicked sores. It's a just judgment. And because they are, they, they've figuratively drunk the blood of the martyrs in the slaughtering of the saints during the, the rule of Antichrist, God's going to force them to have to drink literal blood. And notice the end of verse 6. They deserve it. It's emphatic. And the point is, these people have chosen their ways. They weren't tricked into it. They knew what they were doing. They deliberately sinned. They deliberately took the mark of the beast because their soul delights in their abominations. Uh, interestingly, in Isaiah 66, verse 6, last book of Isaiah, where actually that statement, on this one I will look, he who is humble and contrite of heart who trembles at my word, it comes from that, in that same chapter. It goes on to explain what's going on here in Revelation when God pours out his wrath upon Israel. It's the same same context. God describes, shares his heart in his judgment this way. He's rebuking Israel for their sin. Beginning in verse 3, second line there. These have chosen their own ways. These have chosen their own ways. And their soul delights in their abomination. I will also choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one listened. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which is in which I do not delight. Again, they chose this. They are so delighted in their abominations. And the Lord wants us to see that in all this wrath, He's he's giving people precisely what they've chosen, what they deserve. And they deserve it because this is what they've chosen. And we need to recognize that every person who goes to hell has chosen that punishment. Because they have refused to worship the one true God. There is enough evidence in nature that God exists and he deserves to be worshipped, and they have refused to do so. And even, even people who have heard the gospel explain to them, and it's, it's been articulated that there is a, a means of fleeing from the wrath of God by just simply trusting in Christ. They can hear that good news, and they can still choose to reject it. In fact, if you've ever had a chance to do evangelism, 
the majority of people you share the great news of the gospel with reject it because they, their soul chooses the abomination and they choose wrath even knowingly. And this, the point is, they've chosen this. They're not victims of God's wrath. They are criminals and they're getting what they have deserved. Now, most Christians, including myself, have a difficult time coming to grips with this reality because the wrath of God is awful. And because we too are criminals, because we are sinners. And it's hard to recognize, it's hard to come to grips with the fact that we can, that we ourselves are safe and that so many more aren't. And why does God allow things to be that way? But it's important for us to recognize that just because we're all sinners doesn't mean that we all deserve amnesty. In fact, it means none of us do. We all deserve God's wrath to be poured out upon us. And we should think about that as we're reading this text. This should be us. The only reason we won't get this wrath is because Christ has paid for our sin in full. And therefore we have full forgiveness. But it is what we actually deserve. And it's what everybody deserves. And so I think it's helpful as we're reading Revelation not to... Not to have any, the idea in our mind that there are good guys, the saints, and there are bad guys, those who take the mark of the beast. Now, it's true the saints are worshiping around the throne, they're clothed in white, but we need to recognize those are actually bad guys that have simply been forgiven. It's just grace. They're not good guys. They're just forgiven, cleansed, justified, and sanctified. And that's it's a critical point for us to, to grasp because it will be hard to see the wrath of God. Um, but it, we have to become increasingly convinced that, that what is truly right and what is just is God's wrath. He's good. He's right. And people have chosen this for their punishment. And they will know it on that day. The fourth bowl, which is discussed in verses 8 and 9, is then poured out upon the sun. It causes men to be scorched by its heat. But remarkably, rather than being humbled into submission, it drives men to curse God. They still refuse to repent. They still refuse to give Him glory. Even if they've experienced the intensity of God's wrath upon them, they don't want to repent. You see, it, it, it makes the point clear. They don't want God. They would rather be scorched with unbearable heat and with sores then worship the, the wonderful God that has created all things. They're choosing this. And the fifth bowl then is poured out on the throne of the beast, and it causes his kingdom to become bar- darkened. This is where it says that the people in the kingdom at this point begin to gnaw their tongues in pain. At first glance, it seems that the pain is connected to the darkness. But we see in the following verse, the gnawing is due to the pain from the sores and from the scorching sun. But the emphasis actually here isn't so much on the intensity of the pain as it is their response, despite the pain. They, 
they still continue to curse God. They don't repent. Which again, it just shows just the, the incredible hardness of men's hearts. God brings His judgment into people's lives so that they might repent. His aim is ultimately to help. It's not to harm people. He wants them to repent. They just won't. And that, you know, to some extent, this is helpful for us. When we're dealing with people, and, and we shouldn't be shocked by the hardness of people's hearts, especially unbelievers. You, you, of course, we expect believers to be soft towards the truth, but even, even then, people can harden their hearts. It's this, it's, they're, they're so hardened, they will not repent under, under essentially extreme pain. But God is seeking to help people realize the evil of their deeds. He wants them to see the folly of sinning. He wants them to see that this is what your choices have brought you. He's not, he's not delighting in the punishment. He's hoping for repentance. But instead of recognizing their folly and receiving, that they're receiving exactly what they deserve, instead they slander God. And, and this really shows us why the victim mentality that's pervasive in our culture is so dangerous. Because it, it, if people believe they deserve a certain thing, especially from God, whenever they experience this discipline, they're, they're going to be reluctant to repent because they're not deserving their victims. And this sort of thinking really lures us into assuming that we're actually more righteous than God, that we have a better sense of justice than God does. If God allows any harm to befall us, and we don't think we deserve it, then he must be unrighteous or he's not sovereign. So he's either not sovereign or he's not good or he's not righteous. But just, just that kind of thinking is immensely arrogant. It's driven by an assumption that we are wiser or have a stronger sense of justice than God. Just consider Job. And the Bible tells us that, very explicitly, he was the most righteous man, at least at that time. The most righteous man living. Even after all the awful assaults he experienced from Satan, he didn't sin with his lips. He remained righteous. But was Job a victim? Was Job a victim? In a sense he was, because Satan assaulted him. But was God unjust in allowing Satan to assault him, even though Job was such a good man? See, Job vehemently defended himself against his friends, and he, he actually began to assert his righteousness to the extent that he began to question God's righteousness, and that's when he went wrong. And when he was trying to defend himself, began to assume that he was so just that if God was, had allowed this, then God must not be as just as we might think. And, and when we begin to embrace this victim mentality, we're really on the same path. And God needed to show even Job that there was no place ever to judge his righteousness. Never. And remember how the book ends. Job says, I can do I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Right? He realized after God had to just help him understand, Job, you don't know anything about what's going on. So then to presume that, that you can call my justice into question is arrogance. And he was doing that for, for in kindness to Job. And also in kindness to us, that in, in seeing how God dealt with Job, that we too would realize God is good and God is just even when it doesn't make sense to us. And even when these horrific judgments are poured out, we've got to be in a place where we recognize God is not being cruel. He's being just. This is what people have chosen. They're not victims, they're criminals. And so rather, when we even face difficulty or suffering or trials, rather than assuming that we've been victimized, or just thinking about how unjust or how unright the situation we are, are is in that we're in, rather than focusing upon that, our mind should instead have the apost- the perspective of the apostle James. I mean, what he says in James one two. Consider it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And it just even gives a little bit of support to that. I mean, it's scripture, so we can embrace it, but a little more support. This is the mentality of the believers that enables them to endure throughout the tribulation. I mean, you, you remember how awful things are going to be during the tribulation. And yet those who are martyred and who are enslaved to do who knows what, who lose everything for their faith, we see singing in Revelation 15. And look at the lyrics of their song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. You see what they they recognize, even in the horrific things that they've had to experience, and being martyred for the faith. God is so good. God was just in allowing me to be unjustly killed. That's what they're saying. He was completely righteous. And so, even we too, when we face suffering. Even the discipline of the Lord, the right response, it's the same. It's just humble trust and repentance. If there's some known sin, repent. If you're not sure, like Job, why you're going through this affliction, trust Him. Just cling to Him. And know that He's good. Know that He's just. And this is why the author of Hebrews says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves. He chastises every son whom he received. It's for discipline that you have to endure. And really, that's, remember, that's the, that's the key application of Revelation. We want to endure because we want to get through this. We want to, we want to get to the other side where we are clothed with crowns and we have white robes. How do we do that? How do you endure through this? This tells us. You're disciplined. You see, the love of God, even allowing trials, it prepares us to endure greater trials. Which is exactly what James as well said. 
author of Hebrews continues, It's for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all participated, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Right? He wants us to be like him. And for the moment, discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Again, I just want to be very clear. This is horrific suffering that's happening. But it's just. And even for the believers who have to face the wrath of, of those who are, who, are being, who are suffering under God's wrath, God is still just with that. And he's still good. The sixth bowl is then poured out on the Euphrates River. And the, the river's dried up so the number of armies from the east can cross over into the Holy Land uh, in preparation for this final battle that's known as Armageddon. The, the word itself means the, the mountain of, mountains of Megiddo. The mountain of Megiddo. There's no such place that we know of. Most people think it, it describes that region of Megiddo uh, that has a, there's a valley of Megiddo and there's a number of mountains that surround the valley. So they believe that that's where that bat, final battle will be fought and hundreds of battles have been fought there before throughout history. But remarkably, the judgment here isn't the battle. It's not, it's not even really the drying up of the river. The judgment is allowing those Armies to come. Because he's gathering them together so that they would be slaughtered. He's gathering them together like grapes that will be crushed to produce wine. Now it also says that uh, these armies are inspired by evil spirits that come out of the mouth of the beast and the prophet. They're described as frogs. They're like frogs. Nobody really knows the significance of frogs, so we can only speculate. Um, in fact, the only frog demon I was able to come up with in my research was the, the I think it's Heck, uh, the Egyptian god, god, goddess, actually, who was a frog, but still doesn't seem to relate in this context. So we don't really know the significance of frogs. But what God is going to use... Um, is these demons to accomplish his own end. Right? These, he's going to use the demons to gather these armies to come against Israel, but he's using them in order to slaughter everybody who participates in that army. And it just shows God can use demons to bring about his good purposes. We don't have to fear demons. God's got them under his control. And notice the second parenthetical statement in this chapter. It's given in verse 15. And this tells us the second implication of, the, of this text for us. And that is we need to be alert. In fact, this is the primary application as you look at Scripture throughout you know, everything that's dealing with eschatological texts in Old Testament, New Testament. This is the primary thing we're told. Be ready for it. Be on the alert. Don't be caught 
spiritually sleeping. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. And then he says in verse, a few verses later, Therefore, stay awake, because you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. It's the same exhortation that is given to the Thessalonians. Chapter 5. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Well, people are saying, this is remarkable, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Apostle Peter makes the same exhortation. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When you hear these repeated exhortations, be on the alert, be on the alert, be on the alert, it's almost like God's trying to tell us something. Of course he is, he's telling us we need to be ready because... He knows many people won't be. That begs the question, well, why not? I mean, after all of these judgments, well, Christ's warning that, that he's coming like a thief is what theologians call his imminent return. It means that, that we, we don't know when Christ is going to arrive. It's going to come like a thief. Thieves don't announce when they're going to show up. But remarkably, the doctrine of Christ's imminent return, that we just don't know when he's coming, that doctrine is one of the primary reasons that people hold to a pre-tribulational rapture. And the thinking goes that since we don't know when Christ is going to return, that if all of these tribulations begin to happen, Antichrist comes, sets up the abomination of desolation, uh, then at that point we know it's going to be three and a half years because it's a seven-year tribulation. If that's the case, then Christ's return must happen before uh, the tribulation starts. It's one of the primary reasons they, they, they hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. And that's reasonable. Um, the problem is, uh, the weakness of this position is verse 16. Because this warning of Christ's coming is coming at the end of the tribulation. It's the same warning that, he, that, he, that is given in all these other texts. Three and a half, three, half years after the abomination of desolation. And so, the imminency of Christ's return really fits more of a post-tribulational rapture. So, I understand the, the, the concern. Well, if we know all these things are happening... 
then we should be able to calculate Christ's return. But this warning is given in light of all these things happening. So why is it that people don't see it happening? Why is it that people can be at peace? I'll try and answer that question in a second. But clearly when this warning is given in Revelation 16, after numerous unmistakable signs, nobody should be taken off guard. But we know that many people will be. So before we, we consider why are people going to be taken off guard and need to be on the alert, let's first just answer the question, what does it actually mean to be on the alert? Well, as, as Peter said in the text I just read, it means living lives of holiness. It means recognizing, being spiritually uh, alert, striving to be faithful to God as our master, living in the fear of God. What's going to lead people astray is caring more about the things of this life rather than what God wants. And what he wants us to do is, is to prioritize God's will over the allurements of his life. That's what's going to lead us into just taking, not taking these warnings seriously. And again, think of the parable of the talents. Right? They, 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 the one guy just wasn't thinking about the return of his master. And what would happen? God wants us to be faithful now knowing he's going to be returning. Well, when the seventh bowl is poured out, the wrath of God, it says, is going to be finished. And all that's going to be left is for Christ's return. He will slaughter his enemies at Armageddon and then take his throne. When the seventh bowl is poured out, it's, it, it says it's going to result in a devastating earthquake. And not only is it going to flatten the city of Babylon completely, where the city of the beast rules, it, it will lead to worldwide geographical changes. There's not going to be any islands. There's not going to be any mountains anymore. There's actually numerous Old Testament passages that speak of the geographical changes that are going to happen at the coming of the Lord. Uh, starting at Zechariah 14. You flip there. Begin reading at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Right? This is Armageddon. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations, as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward, the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Uh, look especially at Ezekiel 38. I encourage all of you to look at that. Ezekiel 38, beginning in verse 18. And this is, a, this is a chapter, Ezekiel 38 and 39, that are worth lengthy readings. We won't read all of it for the sake of time. Ezekiel 38, beginning in verse 18, this is the, the prophecy of Gog and Magog. It will come about on that day when Gog comes about against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger, in my zeal, and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, right? Just as what was promised. 
the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. Also Isaiah 26.15 mentions this. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. I'll keep reading. Every man's sword will be against his brother with pestilence and with blood. I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with them a torrential rain with hailstones. Same thing mentioned in chapter 16 of Revelation. Fire and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself. I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know that I am the Lord. Now what I want to draw your attention to First of all, just, this is describing the same events. But if you look earlier in chapter 38, it describes Israel dwelling in complete security. If you look at beginning at verse 7 and 8. After, um, let's see, what will be the best where it says that. Uh, look at, sorry, verse, verse 11. Describes the security of Israel. They're dwelling without walls. No bars or gates. I think in that reference, um, some scholars believe that the battle of Gog and Magog must be referring to the battle that's described later in Revelation 20 at the very end of the millennium when Satan is released and there's one final battle and Jesus then throws uh, the, the Satan into uh, the fiery pit permanently or the lake of fire. Um, and I think that's a possible interpretation. But the description of what takes place in Ezekiel 38 and 39 really follows closely what's described in Revelation 16. So I think it's more likely um, describing uh, the, 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 the events immediately preceding Christ's return to set up this kingdom. And in fact, the secure dwelling of Israel is probably the reason that people aren't expecting the return of Christ. So, for, again, it's, there's a lot of things that are happening. We're not given every detail. But the people of Israel are dwelling secure. I mean, even with, despite all these cataclysmic destructions, they think they're at peace. Now, with, maybe this has something to do with the, the peace that Antichrist has given and it's easy when we read Revelation to just think these things happen one after another, and it's just everybody's going to be alert. But we know even cataclysmic events can happen, and then three weeks later we just forget about it. We've moved on. I mean, is there still a war in Ukraine? Israel and Hamas are still war. We just don't talk about it as much. Instead, you know, the headlines are dealing with such nonsense. Well, it's because that's just where people are at. And if people are secure, they're not too worried. As long as they have what they need to survive, they have the entertainment, they're relaxed. And these people are not going to see this sudden destruction coming upon them. And so we can't be so naive as to assume, if we happen to be alive when this happens, that we're not going to, have, we're not going to be hoodwinked also. We might be. If we're not, if we're not diligently seeking the Lord... 
And so we're told to be on the alert. And the result, of course, of this great earthquake is the destruction of the city of Babylon, and that's described in the next two chapters. And they serve as a kind of interlude. Because sequentially, after the the great earthquake, immediately comes the one-sided battle of Armageddon, when Christ returns with his holy ones and establishes his kingdom on the earth. And this, this is what chapter 19 will describe. So we'll, we'll look at uh, chapter uh, 17 and 18 uh, in the weeks to come. I may just do it in one message. But it just describes what happens to Babylon. But sequentially, the next thing that happens after this earthquake is Armageddon. So, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I do pray that you would keep my brothers and sisters here alert. Lord, whether you take us home before this time or when this is the point when you would take us home, Lord, help give us endurance, discipline us so that we would endure and strengthen our faith, strengthen our confidence in you and in your justice, even to the extent that we can become increasingly more comfortable with the reality of hell. Lord, because we know you're just, we know you're righteous, we know you're good. And so increase our confidence in you and your character. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, as I had mentioned, 